All right, well, hey, grab your Bibles. Hold them up. Let me see them. Do you have your Bible this morning? Prove it. I got mine, huh? I've got mine. All right, well, open them then. Show me that you know how to use them to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We started a new series in the book of 1 Corinthians just a few weeks ago, so you're getting in early. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Okay, so when you think about some of the uh, greatest moments in human history, maybe what would some of them be that would come to mind? I jotted down a few. And uh, ask yourself this, what if some of the greatest moments in human history, just plain old, never happened? Uh, What if, what if in 1492 Columbus didn't sail the ocean blue? What if? Well, we wouldn't have gotten a day off last week, and, uh, but beyond that, I mean, you know, wow, this land would have a very different tale to tell, and I mean, we would all agree the world as we know it would just be an altogether different place. Uh, what if you were to remove D-Day from history? Evil surely would have left a far deeper scar, uh, and who knows the extent uh, of the reign of terror that would have started there. But let's just all agree that History would be altogether different. The world that we live on today would be altered. What if you removed the moon landing from human history? I mean, talk about our sense of adventure and just the desire to to go and and, uh, to set an unattainable goal and somehow to make it. Uh, Surely that uh, what would we have lost if we didn't have those videos in that amazing day when they stepped foot on the moon? Okay, but get this. If you remove the cross from human history, if it never happened, sin has no cure and man has no hope. If you remove the cross from human history, we lose everything. There was a point in history, there was a place in history where the Son of God took on the sins of humanity. And the wrath of God was satisfied. And it happened at a place and it happened at a point. It was the most important moment in all of humanity. It was then that God the Father acted to provide a way that we can be saved. This is what the Bible refers to as the wisdom of God. This is what the Bible refers to as the power of God. And the wisdom and the power of God stands opposed to the wisdom and power of man. The problem is, in Corinth, they are being torn between the wisdom and power of man and between the wisdom and power of God. So the message this morning is on, very simply, very basically, the cross. Only it's not like, oh, I should have brought a friend today. We're talking about the cross. The Apostle Paul grabs the heads of the Corinthians and turns their eyes, the church turns their eyes on the cross and says, look, look. They've got four things that he wants them to see. Let's pray and then we'll talk about what we see at the cross. Father in heaven, we trust that your love for us is most perfectly and finally and completely displayed at the cross. We have to get Jesus right. If we're going to get the church right, And if we have to get Jesus right, we have to get the cross right. So this morning, as we fix our eyes on the cross, show us what we need to see that we might be the church that pleases you. This is our prayer. We ask this of you in in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
There's kind of a hint verse in verse 17. Verse, remember last week, we kind, of found, we kind of found out that there were some problems. Remember that Chloe's people tattled. And they were fighting, oh, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. And there were church fights. And last week we talked about church fights. Uh, don't miss that sermon. It's online if you want to listen to it. But church fights, if you want to learn what the Bible has to say about that, go listen. But uh, then in verse 17, Paul's fear is that the cross of Christ is going to be emptied of its power by the way that they're behaving. Okay, so reading on verse 18, it says, For the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here's the first thing we have to see at the cross. Jot this down in your bullets, and if you're taking notes, your destiny is determined at the cross. Your destiny is determined at the cross. It says here, the word of the cross. That's kind of shorthand for the whole message of Christ, the gospel. But here we're focusing on the cross in, in particular. And it says that it, the word of, the message of the, the cross is folly or foolishness, uh, moronic to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Do you see how herein the cross divides all of humanity into two very simple groups? There's only two. It's those who are being saved and it's those who are perishing. Two groups. In fact, the cross divides all of human history into two sections, before God poured out his full grace and wrath on the cross and after. The cross divides all of humanity into two very simple sections. We mark history, B.C. and A.D. It is the turning point. It's the turning point in every individual's life. The cross is the pivotal moment in human history for us and for God. Well, why for us? Well, for us... Because at the cross, human depravity was most viciously displayed than ever before. I mean, you see, in the Garden of Eden, if you remember the story, we were able to hide from God, right? We were able to hide, and God, where are you? We're over here. Why are you hiding? Um, we were able to close our ears to God at Mount Sinai. Do you remember that story? How, how they begged that not another word be spoken. They covered their ears because the voice of God was so deafening. We were able to, to cover our ears at Sinai. And after Sinai in the land, the prophets kept coming and, and we were able to kill the messengers of God. Um, but it wasn't until the cross that we were finally able to murder our God. And it is therefore the darkest moment in all of human history. It is the pivotal moment for all of humanity because we could finally murder our God. And yet, it's pivotal also because there finally the divine grace of God was most brilliantly presented. God finally destroyed the devil's work. He told him it was going to happen in the garden. Satan didn't know how this whole thing was going to play out. He comes down, he tempts man. He's mad at God, wants to, you know, what does he do? He gets Adam and Eve to sin. There's a billion ways God could have handled this. He could have just, boom, turned Satan into a bowl of jello. Right there, that's it, you're done. Everyone else, look, you want to get turned into a bowl of jello? Do what he did. All right, but what did he do? He said, he said about the offspring of the woman, right? You will strike his heel, he will crush your head. So in God's wisdom, somehow God foreshadowed that an, a human was going to destroy a fallen angel. That would have to be some human. 
I mean, that would have to be one big, tough, tall, uh, or maybe divine human to slaughter the being who has plunged every human. I mean, Satan's record is like, how many humans have, have existed on the planet? You know, a trillion and oh, until Jesus came along. Couldn't get him. And that one defeat cost him his entire kingdom. God finally destroyed the devil's work. He also finally destroyed death. Who escaped death? No one escaped death finally until Christ came. And he also at the cross stripped sin of his power. And justice was therefore fully served and forgiveness can therefore be dispensed to sinful people. This only happened at the cross. And therefore your destiny is and was determined at the cross and you can now be saved. Listen to that word. Listen to it. Not taught, not helped, not healed, not guided. Saved. I read a story this last week. The headline is, Man survives for days after car plunges off cliff. In California, a 67-year-old man who survived for five or six days eating leaves and drinking creek water after his car plunged 200 feet off a California mountain road was finally found and rescued by his own children who tracked him down like television detectives. After the family reported that his, uh, his, their dad was missing, they worked with the detective to narrow the search area, used his cell phone record, towers, text messages, debit card purchases. Finally, after the narrowing, narrowing the search to one area, quote, we stopped at every ravine, looked over every hill, and then my brother got out of the car and we kept screaming. And the next thing we heard was dad saying, help, help. He was finally rescued. How would, how would this story have ended if they heard the father saying, I'm okay, thanks. Saved? No, I don't need to be saved. What are you talking about? I'm fine down here. I've got water. I've got leaves. I've got a car. What do you mean saved? I've, how ridiculous would that be? And this is what's happening between us and God. He's looking down and says, I'm going to help you. Help us? Saved? What do you mean? We're fine down here. We've got, this is like paradise. We're great. No, thank you. How foolish is that? The word is saved. And if you're not saved, the word the Bible uses is perishing. And there's only two groups, and you're in one, and it's the cross that determines which group you're in. It's very clear. The, your destiny is determined at the cross. Number two, you can write this down. The second thing we see at the cross is find God's wisdom at the cross. Find God's wisdom at the cross. Look at verse 19. It says, For it is written, uh, so it is written, so he's, he's uh, quoting Isaiah 29 14 here. Uh, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Or the, uh, you have like the NIV, it says, The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Um, the cross destroys human wisdom. Reading on, it says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God 
is stronger than men. Let's unpack this. Find God's wisdom at the cross. This quote from Isaiah 29.14 where it says, uh, the wisdom of the wise I will destroy. This was an oracle of woe. It was where a prophet got to get up and predict calamity for a nation on God's behalf because God was standing against. Uh, and here, God was standing against, sadly, those in Israel who were hypocrites. Um, and so, here the foreshadowment, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, foreshadows that when the Messiah would come, one of the many things he would do is destroy what all of the wise people in the world thought would happen to humanity. He would just obliterate it. Therefore, we see that God doesn't just look through the books on the bestseller list and take a little bit of them and weave human wisdom into his plan. Like he's impressed. Like, oh, what did, what did this person tweet today? Oh, i got to get that. Wow, that's profound. God's wisdom and man's wisdom have irreconcilable differences. And therefore, God is opposed to the wisdom of the wise. And the Messiah came that he might judge godless wisdom and utterly destroy it. Then in verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now this echoes Isaiah 33, 18, where Jerusalem was under siege. And um, he was actually giving them hope. If you look back at the original verse, what he, what he said there was, time is coming when you will say, where is he who counted the towers or demanded money from you? The Lord will save us. So get, this is, I love this. This is kind of cool. God was giving them hope by saying, the time is going to come when you say to your enemies, what now? What now? Where is the one who is counting the towers? Where is the one who demanded money from us? Where is the one who surrounded of us? It's the ancient equivalent of what now, right? If you're a fan of MMA, Mixed martial in the octagon, okay? Usually what happens when the guy wins after is he goes in front of the camera and he basically is like, what now? And he starts naming all the other names of people he wants to fight, right? And he's just like talking tough. God, basically in the Old Testament, he was telling them in this verse, oh, you're going to talk tough. You just wait. When I do something, you're going to look at all the other nations who surrounded you and you're just going to be like, what now? I like that. God is opposing the wisdom of the wise and he is against those who are against him. And I love that in the Old Testament that finished out with the Lord will save us. He will save us. And so here, Paul, looking at what happened at the cross and looking what happened between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God, he says, God did it. God saved us. Where is everyone who thought they were going to figure it all out? Look. Where are they? What, what now? Look, he did it. Find God's wisdom at the cross. I wonder where you get your wisdom from. You know, everybody has a, what I would call a truth panel. You get your wisdom from somewhere. Uh, and um, maybe it's grandma. Maybe it's NPR. Maybe it's the latest feature film. Maybe it's the Dalai Lama. I don't know. But you've got your truth panel. If I start asking you questions about origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, you'll start pointing to people in your life uh, who have given you the truth that you embrace. Everyone's got a truth panel. Uh, in our day and age, though, many people have very conflicting voices on their truth panel that don't always agree. Uh, I, I found this picture. It was hilarious because it mixed all of these different uh, fantasy voices of truth together into one place. So look at this picture. Check this out. Star Wars meets Lord of the Rings meets Star Trek meets Harry Potter 
If you laugh at that, you're a nerd. And I laughed a lot. <laughs> Wait a minute. You've got all these famous voices. You've got Gandalf. And, you've got... and I think, yeah, this is kind of funny, but it also is kind of the way that we all get our truth. It's, it's like from this person, from this person, from this person, and it's, and it's all mushed together, thrown in the crock pot, and that's where I get my truth. And the Bible says, get your truth from the cross, period. It's not like a buffet. Look at this. This is a picture. Okay, here's the old country buffet. All right, this is what a lot of people do. They go to this place, and they get a little, and then they go to this place, and they get a little, and then they go to this place, and they get a little, and then they mush it all together. Uh, and if you get them to actually say what they believe, it doesn't agree. But everybody has a truth panel and the Bible challenges you to get your wisdom from God at the cross. And it says don't get your wisdom from humanity. It says both. The wisdom of man, the wisdom of God have irreconcilable differences. Do you know in verse 21, it says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom. You know, human history is really humiliating. I mean, if you... <laughs> How could you put your hope in humanity after going through a basic history course? How could you honestly do it? The resounding chant that rises in volume generation after generation after what we choose to do among ourselves and on this planet is no, we can't. No, we can't. And if you look back and say, wow, we're really getting it all together. I mean, we're heading in the right direction. I mean, utopia is just right around the corner here. Oh, no, in the wisdom, we do not know God in our own wisdom. It's embarrassing what we've done. The culmination of our history is Christ crucified. At best, we're like drunk driving human history backwards in a garbage truck toward the Grand Canyon. That's my summary of all of human history. <laughs> An alien race came down and they're like, how you guys doing? You know, like, I'd be like, yeah, we're not doing so great. In fact, we're doing awful. We killed our God. Christ crucified. Listen to that. Christ, anointed one, king, ruler, crucified, criminal, guilty, humiliated. And yet this is what we preach. Christ crucified. It's our only hope. It's the wisdom of God. John MacArthur said that one man could die on a piece of wood on a nondescript part of the world and thereby determine the destiny of every person who has ever lived seems stupid. It's true. It's the wisdom of God, but it's foolish to those who are perishing. What do you see at the cross? Well, your destiny is determined at the cross. Find God's wisdom at the cross. Number three, jot this down. The cross is for every individual on the planet. It's for every individual on the planet. Check out verse 22. Verse 22, it says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach... Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly for Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Jews, Greeks, Jews, Gentiles, it encompasses all of humanity. The cross is therefore for every individual on the planet. It is what we would call a universal truth. Uh, it's binding on every man, woman, and child who walks the face of the planet today, yesterday, and until the end of time. It is a universal, absolute truth. And let me talk to our college students for a moment here. We have uh, several college students, many of them from uh, Trinity. We're, do we have many Trinity students here today? Where are you at? Put your hand up. You're from Trinity. All right, yeah. Troll Nation. Troll Nation. Award-winning mascot every year. Hey, listen, to our college students, 
what's happening in this generation is unprecedented because the very concept of truth is being changed. What is truth? Before we even get to the details of what we believe, the very idea of truth is being changed and twisted and warped. And uh, if I had to jot down four uh, commonly held ideas about truth itself that are simply unbiblical, I would say one of them is this. As long as you truly believe it, it's true. As long as you truly believe it, it's true. Uh, This is false. It's insinuating that somehow the sincerity of your belief makes it true. And if you really, with all of your heart, truly and deeply believe it, it must be true. Um, Try that anywhere else in your life. Okay, sports fans, really and truly and deeply and with all of your heart, believe that the Cubs will win the World Series. (laughs) Believe it again and believe it again. Believe it again. Hey, listen. Sincerity does nothing to truth. Nothing. And, and how something could not work in any other area, and yet on the very most important area of life, truth, you're going to apply that, that sincerity creates truth. It's just false. It's not, it doesn't happen. Uh, here's another one. It's true for you, but not for everybody. Uh, it's true for you, but not for everybody. So this is relativism. Um, it, it, I... Relative to me, I make something true. Okay, So I say, I believe Jesus Christ is the Lord. And someone would say, well, that's true for you, but that doesn't make it true for everyone. So they're making it now this relativistic thing where relative to me, I create truth. Um, But I can't make something true. Truth is not self-assembled. It's not something that I get to... Uh, mixed together, it's God disclosed. And this is a tough one, but you have to let others know that you believe truth by definition transcends. Okay? By definition, if it's true, it's true. It's not true through my eyes. That's, that's not true. That's, the word true means it transcends all individuals. That's what we would call absolute truth. It's something that we discover. It's something that we surrender to. And most of all, if you believe it's true to God, you can't then say, okay, but my friend, it's, it's not true for them. No, if it's true to God, it's true for everyone. You don't determine truth. Sincerity doesn't make something true. Relativism, I don't make something true. The third one I would say that's popular today is, it's true along with everybody else's beliefs too. Okay, yeah, yours is true, but everybody else's is True too. So this is what we would call pluralism. Pluralism. But everybody can't be equally true. Okay? The Muslims say Jesus Christ will return. Did you know that? They say he's coming back. The Muslims say when he gets back, he will kill the Antichrist. And then the Muslims say he, Jesus, will die. Because everybody has to die. All right, we say Jesus will come back and he will rule for all of eternity. They both can't be true. All right, you have to pick one. You can't just say, well, well, yeah, yours is true, but so is everybody else's. That doesn't logically, coherently make sense because the truth claims don't agree. 
In fact, they are very, very in much disagreement. And it's way too easy to be like, well, they're all true. Okay, I would call that laziness. You have to pick one. You can't say, well, they're just all true. It doesn't work that way. Um, And the fourth one I would say that's common today is, it's all the same truth, it's just got a different name. So all religions basically teach the same thing, right? I mean, sure, you believe your thing, I believe my thing, but they all basically teach the same exact thing, right? Uh, Will Smith, in an interview back in um, 2005, says, I've probably read 95% of the words in the Bible, 60% of the Torah, 70% of the Koran, and the thing that is so amazing to me is how everybody, in essence, believes the same thing, end quote. Okay, this is just false. It's not my opinion, it's just false. They disagree, the major world religions disagree over virtually everything. The origin of the universe, the destiny of the universe, the problem of sin, the nature of man, the nature of God, which books are holy, how to be saved. It's just false. The religions do not teach the same thing. Brit Hume got in major trouble. Remember this story? When Tiger Woods, the whole scandal blew up, and Brit Hume had the nerve when asked what he thought to say this. Tiger, turn to the Christian faith and you can make a total recovery and be a great example to the world. He said, what? What? How dare he? How dare he look upon another human and expect them to adhere to his own truth claim? When interviewed by Christianity Today, when asked, why you would say something like that, Brit Hume said this, Christianity, like, get this, no other religion we've ever known is principally and fundamentally and especially about forgiveness and redemption, and that's why Christ was here. It's true. The cross is for every individual on the planet. And listen, it's not an unloving thing to say that. If it's true to God, and if you really believe it, the most unloving thing that you can do is never share that with anyone. That's the most unloving thing you can ever choose to do with those who you claim to love. The most loving thing that you can choose to do if you believe the cross is the dividing point between all, human, all humanity and God is to lovingly share the truth so that some others can get saved. The cross, your destiny is determined there. Find God's wisdom there. The cross is for every individual on the planet. Number four, jot this down. Boast only in the cross. Nothing else, no one else, boast only in the cross. So now Paul gets us back to the reason why he's writing this to this divided church. Verse 26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Get this, boast only in the cross, nothing else, no one else, only in the cross. The big problem is in Corinth, they were looking at other people and they were like, whoa, Apollos, there's where it's at. Yeah. And then someone else was like, no, 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 no. Peter, mm, that's where it's at. And Paul is like, stop it. No, 
Boast only in the cross, nothing else, no one else, only in the cross. He uh, references here Jeremiah 9.23 vaguely. I've heard this before. It says, the Lord says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Boast only in the cross. And what's fascinating to those who love theology is he appeals to the doctrine of election here to humble. He appeals to this idea that God chose you, God chose us, and does it to bring about humility. He levels the playing field among all, saying, God selected all of you, which would therefore include all of their leaders who they were so proud of. And by saying God chose all of you, it strips men of all room for boasting and gives God all the glory. This is fascinating. Hey, do you want to see a picture of a prize-winning dog? I mean, a dog that was chosen among all other dogs to be award-winning. Do you want to see it? The reason I'm about to show you this is because even though you are chosen and selected Paul's point is to bring about humility, okay? So this is a dog that was chosen from all the other dogs to be a prize-winning pooch. Check out the picture. Here it is. This is a chihuahua named Princess Abby, and she was named the 2010 World's Ugliest Dog. All right, now some of you, out of sympathy, want to choose that dog to come and dwell with you, right? <clears throat> okay, let me just say this. The thought that God chose us, the thought that we were, of all the humans, the ones that he selected. Don't flaunt yourself. Okay? Don't let it go to your head. I mean, he did not pick the cream of the crop of humanity. You get this? In fact, the, the fact that you were chosen says something about you. That by worldly standards, you are Foolish. And Paul says here, the nature, the, the quality of those that God calls. He says, <clears throat> God chose what is low and despised. It says he chose what is foolish. It says he chose what is weak. He chose what is low. He chose what is just not. You're just, you're just not. It's very fascinating what he's doing here. He's showing that because we are named by God, chosen by Him, it's like we just gave up when it came to trying to become all that in the eyes of the world. We just, bottom of the barrel, we forget it, we've given up, we've surrendered, we don't want to be that. And in the eyes of the world, we are foolish, nothing, despicable, refuse, we are dumb, we are still today, stupid, narrow-minded, empty-headed, that's us. And that's why God picked us. The doctrine of election gives us great and tremendous security, and yet here we see that it also brings humility. <clears throat> Tracing it through the book, in verse 1, Paul himself said he was called to be an apostle. He didn't, he didn't work his way up or earn it or compete in some preaching contest and won it and woo! It, no, God called him. He, in fact, called himself the least of all the apostles. Verse 2, the church was called to be saints. Verse 9, God called you 
into the fellowship of his son. Verse 24, those who are called includes both Jew and, and Gentile. Let's pretend that you're an ancient Jewish audience. When I say the word Gentile, you have to like sigh and almost hiss a little bit. Jew and Gentile. Those dirty, filthy, smelly people who don't eat like we eat or worship like we were, they are called, chosen by God. Verse 26, our calling is marked by our ordinary nature. Verse 27, we're called foolish. Chapter 7, we are called at a point in time. Chapter 12, verse 18, we are chosen. God chose us to be arranged as a body and therefore we are spiritually united. So these are three observations I make about this doctrine of election in this book of 1 Corinthians. You might want to jot these down. First, the communal nature of our calling. The communal nature of our calling. We are chosen by God. We. All right, look at the person sitting next to you. Look long and look hard. Look at him. Look him in the eye. Now look back up here. If they are a believer in Christ, God called them by name to spend eternity with him. Ron. Ron. Now, if you get all out of whack with Ron, you can't stand Ron. You don't like Ron. This thought that God has chosen him changes what you think of him. Because if that's what God thinks of him, welcome. Who are you to disrespect, disregard him? You see how this brings about humility? Not to mention, you think you worked your way to salvation? You think you earned it? You think you got something coming to you that other people don't have to know? God just, you named you. Note also the second sub-point here, not only the communal nature of our calling, but the divine nature of our calling. We are named by God, selected and chosen, never to be cast away. It is therefore initiated and completed by God. We do not save ourselves in any way. Since He called us, we are indebted solely to Him, to no one else. We are eternally grateful to Him, to no one else. You know what the Bible says that you do your part in salvation? There's a few things. Faith, you believe, but repent. You want to know what the word repent means? I'm only going to do this one, so watch it. Ready? You want to see it again? I'll do it again. All right. I said I was going to do it again, but I'll do it again. This is repent. Turning toward God. So the notion that looking over at Apollos, 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 oh, I love the way you preach. What, what did he do to get into the church? This. Wow. Well, he didn't turn like everybody turns. I mean, he had like a swagger to him. How foolish is it to be like, whoa, to anyone other than Christ? You see how this idea of being chosen is humbling? He did nothing. He believed. He repented. Which That's the third sub-point here. Not, not only the uh, communal nature of our calling, we, the divine nature of our calling, he did it, but there is a human response to God's calling, a human response. We must call upon Jesus as Savior and Lord, and therefore our will is fully engaged in the process. It's no mystery, the standard that God uses. Uh, the answer is in verse 21, who is it that is selected by God? Well, it says in verse 21, to save those who believe. To save, it's not some arbitrary, I don't know how, I don't know why, it's just kind of like, no, 
to save those who believe. The human vantage point is, says in uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You have a choice to make. Okay? You don't sit around waiting as if somehow passively God is just going... No, you have a choice to make. What do you believe about the cross? This idea of election brings tremendous security and comfort when you know that God called you by name. He drew you to to himself. Never will he leave you. Never will he forsake you. He did the whole thing. He gets full credit. You don't even get partial credit. You get a big goose egg at the top of your paper because you did nothing. Roy, you didn't do anything. All right? Nothing. Zero percent. But you understood that Jesus did everything at the cross. You understood that. That's where you've gotten your wisdom. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The security is found in Christ. To know that God has named you and called you to himself. To know that you have found freedom and forgiveness through Christ by faith. To know that it's God's grace, that he gave you something you don't deserve is tremendously freeing. It gives you such a sense of security and yet humility. To look to your left and to look to your right and to be like, they got a big goose egg on their paper too. F, zero, just like me. It's so humbling. These last four points here will come quickly. This is why you can find security only at the cross, only through Jesus Christ. It says here, no human being might boast in the presence of God. It says, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, get this, here's what Jesus became to us. You understand here that truth is not personal. Truth is a person. You get that? Truth is your relationship to a person. It says Jesus Christ became to us, what? Jot this down, God's wisdom. This is divine disclosure. You can know God personally. Hebrews chapter 1 says, In the past God spoke to us in many ways. Today He has spoken to us through His Son. Can you say truly and honestly, I know God personally. He is present. He is real. And my relationship with Him is an ongoing active reality. Can you say that? Or are you still wondering where He's at? Are you still racing to many other different sources of truth to find Something. Are you like Encyclopedia Brown? You're on the case. You're going to find it. You're going to crack it. Someday. God's wisdom is only found in His Son. Next sub point. God's wisdom is found in Christ. God's righteousness is found in Christ. He has become our righteousness. Right legal standing in God's courtroom. It's given. It's not earned. And we need it to find life. Because death is our sentence. Get this, get this. In Eden, you may eat of every tree in the garden except what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, they ate of that tree. And God said, if you eat of it, you will surely die. So they ate of it. And then God said, it's like he's talking to himself. Man has become like us, knowing good and evil. He must not then, therefore, reach out and take hold of the tree of life and live forever. So God banished man from the Garden of Eden. 
So God engineered us to live forever. Problem, sin. Problem, death. Solution. It says in 1 Peter, He himself, of Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree. It calls the cross a tree. Isn't that cool? That we might die to sin and live to God. So the cross is now the tree of life. God banished us from it in the beginning. He opened it up again through his son. We can now be righteous in his sight, pardoned of our sentence, given life everlasting. But it's only found at the cross. God's wisdom, God's righteousness. Next one is God's holiness. Holiness means set apart from sin, useful now to God. Can you say, God's spirit lives in me? Can you say, God is using me for his purposes? That's what holiness means. Finally, God's redemption. Redemption means setting free as a ransomed slave. Can you honestly say, the power of sin has been broken in my life. Sin is no longer my master. Can you say that? There comes a point in your life when you encounter Christ at the cross. It can happen when you're a child. It can happen when you're a senior citizen. But you have to, you have to encounter the living God at the cross if you want to go to heaven. Do you have a story of when that happened in your life? My story is I was uh, a senior in high school. The bass player in my heavy metal band invited me to church, and I went. Freshman in college, I gave my life to Christ, was born again, saved. That's my story. My wife's story is she was raised a Christian, so she went to some vacation Bible school at some charismatic church down the street, saw a video featuring like cartoon peas about righteousness and sin, got all freaked out, went home, talked to her mom, and gave her life to Christ. Okay. There was a teenager in our youth group at Harvest Palace who said this, I was eating a five-layer beefy bean burrito at Taco Bell when I trusted Christ as Savior. <laughs> doesn't matter where it happened, doesn't matter when it happened, but it has to happen. <clears throat> if you don't have a story, hey, maybe that's why God brought you here this morning. Maybe he wanted you to see that your destiny is determined at the cross. Maybe he wanted you to find his wisdom at the cross. Maybe you understand now that the cross is for you and every other individual on the planet. He wants you to make the cross your only hope now and forever. I want to give you a chance right now, <clears throat> right here, for you to step up to the cross to find your Savior. We're going to pray, and I'm not going to pray any magic words. Hopefully you understand, based on this sermon, I got a big goose egg too. But Christ is the one who earned salvation on your behalf. So you're praying to him. You're asking him to be your savior. You'll never regret it. Let's all close our eyes. Let's all bow our heads. And let's go before our Lord who loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. Father, we fix our eyes on the cross. <clears throat> we know. We know. That because the sinless Savior died, we can be ransomed and go free. What joy that fills us with. We know that you chose us by name, not because of who we are, 
but because of who your son was and what he did. And Lord, there are some here this morning who came walking through the doors not knowing where they stood with you, not even knowing right now if they're going to heaven. Father, to those people right now, I appeal, appeal that they pray to you, that they give their lives to you. At the cross, that they would surrender and find a Savior. They may want to pray something like this in the quiet of their own heart. Heavenly Father, I believe that I have sinned. I believe my sins drove Christ to the cross. And here and now, I trust Jesus as my Savior. I can't do it, but you did it. Come into my life. Give me hope that I'm going to heaven. Father, I pray for anyone who just prayed that along with me. May your love and your forgiveness and your acceptance fill those people with the hope that will not disappoint them. Convince them, Lord, that you have accepted them. Nothing can take your love from them. Nothing in this world, nothing in the next. Help them to know that it's by grace they have been saved through faith, not by works. It's the gift of God so that no one may boast. We pray all of this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.